Ladies and gentlemen, October 13th, 2023, I am Matt Belinsky. This is your weekly dose of sanity, the prevailing narrative, and oh my God, do we need some sanity this week. All types of craziness coming out of the Middle East, a region that had been kind of quiet the last few years after being kind of the hot zone with all the risk without all the hostile world affairs emanating from it over the course of most of the 21st century so far. In the last handful of years, you had ISIS defeated. Things were pretty quiet between the Israelis and the Palestinians. You had the Israelis cozying up to the Saudi Arabians and vice versa. Versa. He uh, didn't have any of the controversies over the Iran nuclear deal. Things have been pretty quiet out of the Middle East, at least the last three to five years, all of a sudden explodes with the most vicious and grave terror attack against Israeli soil, particularly against Israeli civilian targets in Israel's history, um, happening over the weekend with Hamas launching just a brutal attack that nobody saw coming and everyone was went well beyond what anybody thought um, could be accomplished uh, with a military adventure against Israel killing at least 900 citizens so far as we stand today. Uh, I believe that the Israelis have not yet launched a ground war or operation into Gaza to respond, but that is on its way and they've, they're have they leveling targets in Gaza, hopefully mostly filled with just Hamas fighters and not civilians, but does seem like a prelude to some escalation here. Um, so before we get into some of, uh, obviously there's no shortage of prongs and aspects of that issue that we want to discuss. Um, just want to mention that another issue that had been trailing behind that before that situation exploded uh, was one that I will be discussing later on this episode with a, uh, a broadcaster named Charlie Arnold. She has a show, Outkick the Morning, on Outkick, the sports pop culture website. This is about one of the kind of hangover Me Too incidents uh, of Major League Baseball pitcher Trevor Bauer, who was suspended for, ba- um, for Major League Baseball for 300 games and essentially booted out of the league in response to accusations that he physically assaulted uh, one of his lovers. And then, you know, after he gets booted out, out of Major League Baseball, a pariah, life ruined a couple years later, a settlement with no money exchanging hands, nor confidentiality restrictions, and it turns out that Trevor Bauer is sitting on a ton of evidence that the woman who accused him was lying her ass off the entire time. Um, Charlie and I are going to get into that along with what it says about sports media, which, uh, as we'll discuss in the context of the Israeli-Palestinian situation, is also very evident of where domestic culture and politics and the culture war in the United States um, has skewed over the last couple years. Years. But first, let's get into the Israeli-Palestinian issue here. Um, and there's just so much to digest. There's so many different aspects of this conversation that are relevant, but there are kind of three that I want to focus on for the purposes of this conversation. Um, one is the moral culpability. And obviously, that's what the battle on social media and the public discourse is about right now. Um, was people claiming Hamas's actions are justified or if they're not justified, that they're at least understandable because of harms visited upon the Palestinians in Gaza. Um, Israel obviously be- believing that they have the moral high ground and this was an unprovoked attack of savagery against civilian targets. Um, and you, you continue and well, you continue to hear the phrase, well, it's complex, it's complicated. Well, it is, but you can't just be lazy and just dismiss any uh, additional analysis or conversation off it's complex. So we're going to dive into those complexities. Uh, the other prong of this conversation will be geopolitical geometry. What's going on more largely in the region amongst sovereign actors like Iran, Saudi Arabia, the United States? How do how do the geopolitics play into and are affected by what transpired this weekend? And then also, as I said, what does this reveal? Because a lot of what's going on right now America in America domestically is a lot of people are showing their true face. A lot of people are masked off about uh, a lot of sympathy for some just... Uh, 
completely unacceptable actions by Hamas. Um, and that's revealing where they uh, a lot of views that certain groups, particularly, you know, kind of progressive millennial activist groups and a lot of you know, a lot of students on campus and a lot of young people who seem to be ascending to some pretty significant positions of power, hold some views that have kind of been in plain sight for quite a while that are pretty repugnant. And it's now finally being revealed. It's finally being exposed in their response to uh, to to the to the Hamas attack this weekend. So those are the three main topics that I want to address. Um, the first one being, once again, everybody says the situation is complex. Well, okay, let's dive into the complexity. Um, the the claim continually is that there is an occupation, right? That the the basis for the hostilities between uh, the Palestinians and the Israelis are that the Israelis are occupying land or uh, areas that the, are majority Palestinian and Arab and Muslim, um, and essentially, you know, creating some sort of apartheid state. And whether or not you want to use those terms to describe it, it's clear that uh, essentially the Israelis, the Jews, and a large Muslim population are living kind of on top of each other, or right next to each other, and they don't necessarily want to intermingle, that there seems to be a separation of these two groups. And to the extent that one uh, is uh, occupying or initiating hostilities against the other, that's creating problems. So um, is this an occupation? What is the basis for that claim? And how how did we get here? So look, let's look at how we got here. How did we get to a state of Israel that technically encompasses what's called the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, which are the Palestinian territories? Um, and why are they why, why are they simultaneously technically part of Israel, but also kind of considered occupied zones or claimed to be occupied zones and discussion of what would potentially be a two state solution that maybe these are areas that should be independent Muslim Palestinian states. So let's get into the history of it here. Um, so. The, the notion of Zionism and Jews uh, living or, or establishing a state in this region has been you know, going on for a while. And even before, you know, it became the, a large Jewish contingency and population settled in the region. So, you know, we could go back in history for a thousand years and look at that. But let's focus on the 20th and 21st century. Uh, 1937, uh, Appeal Commission. This is when, you know, stemming after the Ottoman Empire uh, uh, essentially coughed up this land. You know, it was kind of historically known as Palestine. It was under the Ottoman Empire for centuries, then was under a British uh, mandate, a British protectorate, you know, as as issued from the League of Nations after World War One. Um, and so that those are the conditions in between World War One and World War Two. 1937, the Peel Commission tries to create, you know, a Jewish and an Arab state next to each other in this region. The Arabs rejected that. Then World War II happens, the Holocaust happens, you know, obviously more sympathy for the Jewish cause and the notion that, okay, Jews are not necessarily safe. They don't have a place to coalesce in Europe or anywhere else. So this this land that, you know, even though that they weren't as many of them living there, you know, during the Ottoman Empire, or the early 20th century would be a good place for the Jews to settle a large portion of the Jews coming from Europe who were victimized by the Holocaust and the UN deciding that we should create twin states, Arab and, Arab and Jewish, in this region to live together in harmony. The Arabs rejected that as well. They waged war against the new nation of Israel, and the Israelis beat them. That was the first time that, once again, overtures were made. There was a proposal for two state, for an Arab state and a Jewish state to both exist in this region simultaneously. The Arabs rejected it, initiated a war, and were defeated. Okay, this is the first time. This is not the last time that that's going to happen. And they lost more land. The Arabs lost more land than they would have gotten under the original partition. Had they just taken the UN deal, they would have had more land that they ended up with after 1947. 1967, five Arab nations gang up on Israel 
Israel initiate an attack against Israel. Israel wins yet another war against its Arab neighbors, conquering Gaza, the West Bank, and Sinai in a defensive war. The Arab League declares three no's, no peace with Israel, no recognition of Israel, and no negotiations with Israel. Okay, so what's happening? What is this trajectory and habitually occurring here is that Israel, simply the Jewish population, simply establishes a state, is trying to exist, and its Arab neighbors, who outnumber them something like you know anywhere from 50 to 100 to 1, depending on how you define it, continue to initiate military action against them. The Israelis defeat them, take over additional land, and then are claimed to be occupying that land. So it, it puts them in a bit of a difficult situation because what do you after someone, after your neighbor launches an attack against you from neighboring land and you defeat them? them and overtake that land, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to just give it back so they can attack you again? Because that's what's being claimed. The Arabs essentially say, okay, even though you defeated us in this war, and this is when Israel took over the the now disputed territories of the West Bank and Gaza, Israel won that battle. And their only options were to essentially just give it back to the party that just launched a war against them that they won the land uh, land from. But they didn't do that, obviously, because no sensible people ever would do that. So that leaves them in an odd position where they have to govern these territories that they won in war. They are trying to establish and negotiate some sort of peace. So I got to be honest with you. The trajectory overall seems to be these repeated occurrences of Israel simply trying to exist their Arab neighbors initiating conflict with them and then expecting them to just give back to just essentially disappear or evaporate despite the fact that they keep on winning these battles. As we go on with the history here, Israel does cut a peace deal with Egypt and gives back a massive swath of land in the Sinai Peninsula. Okay, so they returned some land to the Arabs despite the fact that they had conquered it in a defensive war that they did not start. 1993, Israel recognizes the sovereignty of the Palestinian Authority over the West Bank and Gaza Strip in the Oslo Accords. Yasser Arafat, who is the head of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, uses that territory to support to support terrorism. So, yet again, Israelis giving back land. The whole idea here is we give you land, you allow us to just exist on our the land that we keep peacefully. Land for peace. That's the whole notion here. They keep on giving up land and they keep on not giving getting peace. Uh, 2000, which was when we really, everyone really thought we might finally have a peace deal. Uh, Israel offers Yasser Arafat and the uh, PLO recognition of a Palestinian state in all of Gaza and 94% of the West Bank with East Jerusalem as its capital. Do you, do you guys recognize what is happening here? 2000, Israel literally offers the Palestinians 94% of the land that they were negotiating for a lot says here, here's, here's the land. Form a state in these territories that we had previously conquered, but that most of your people live in, that we literally, we don't even want to govern it, just agree not to attack us. And the Palestinians rejected it. They said, no, it's not good enough. Okay. And Im- almost immediately after rejecting that deal, they inst- uh, institute what's called an intifada, which is, you know, some version of a Muslim holy war uh, it, to launch numerous terrorist attacks against Israel. So yet again, an instance of Israel making concessions offering land in exchange for peace and not getting peace, getting uh, getting terrorist attacks. It keeps on happening. 2005, Iraq war is raging in the Middle East. George W. Bush is on a bit of a, a, uh, a program to you know institute democracy in the Middle East and convinces the Israelis to unilaterally pull out of Gaza and allow for democratic elections in Gaza. They, the Israel pulls out, allows for elections, and who do the Palestinians uh, elect but Hamas, which is a noted terrorist group, which has in its charter the destruction of Israel. Yet again, Israel compromising, making concessions, 
and getting violent opposition uh, uh, in response continues to happen. 2008, Israel offers Mahmoud Abbas, uh, who is running the West Bank, once again, the, the recognition of a Palestinian state in all of Gaza and 94% of the West Bank with East Jerusalem as its capital. And once again, the Palestinians reject it. 2010 to 2021, Hamas launches periodic rocket attacks against the state of Israel and builds terror tunnels in order to kidnap and murder Jews while using the people of Gaza as human shields against the Israeli defense forces. Okay, so in looking at this situation, and noting the history that I just described, all of which you can completely verify, but let's just say, hey, that, that it's not entirely one-sided, right? That Israel is not the most pure, innocent party uh, possible, and they've done some bad things as well. And you can look at the situation there and say, okay, you know something? Yes, they have caused a number of civilian casualties uh, in, in their responses to the terrorist attacks and the military hostilities initiated from these territories. And maybe, you know, maybe they have uh, been, they haven't really been the aggressors, but uh, uh, the Israelis have treated the people in these territories inhumanely in making life difficult on them and being a little too callous about civilian, civilian casualties when they counterattack. You absolutely could say those things. Okay, and I don't think Benjamin Netanyahu, who's been you know primary prime uh, minister of Israel for the majority of the last, you know, and uh, he's fluctuated, he's gone in and out of office over the past twenty years. Um, I don't think he's been the most good faith partner and negotiator for peace. However, taking all that into consideration and still looking at the history of this conflict, it's pretty clear that there's one party that just wants to be left alone and is willing to concede and give over land in exchange for peace and keeps on not getting peace in response. This continues to happen, right? So if we're trying to figure out, if we're looking at this this admittedly complex situation and saying, okay, th- throughout the, all the complexity and the history of it, like uh, who has the moral culpability here? The eventual moral culpability seems to fall on the party that continues to not negotiate, that continues not to concede, that continues to initiate the hostilities and the violence in response to the other side making concessions. So you could see if you're a rational observer living in Israel, when you continue to make concessions and continue to have those concessions met with violence, that all of a sudden that there might be a lack of trust on that side. You could, that would seem what a, a rational observer would land on as their conclusion. So if you want to go, once again, do your own research. Go look into the history here. Maybe you think that I'm overlooking uh, uh, some Israeli atrocities and that the Israelis are such the more uh, militarily dominant party that it doesn't matter that, you know, and that the, the Gazans are so oppressed and their lives are made so difficult and uncomfortable by the Israelis that, that this is all warranted. I think that's a completely bankrupt notion. I think that is the incorrect conclusion. Okay. If you're looking at the moral culpability here, particularly through, through the history. Okay. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. Moving on from the historical analysis here to the current situation in that clearly, and and this is, you know, and I'll get to it when I discuss the domestic reaction in just a moment. um, But uh, uh, clearly, even a lot of people who have been critical of Israel are now, you know, noticing are acknowledging the savagery and the brutality and and the violations of any, you know, notion of, of humane war or, you know, uh, humane resistance that occurred this weekend with just the, the, the direct slaughter of anywhere from 900 to 1000 or perhaps even more people, including festival goers. Right. So when you're thinking about, OK, clearly what, what just happened was a, a moral violation by Hamas and the Palestinians. What is a a, what is a legitimate response? How is Israel supposed to respond? And 
look at the situation that Israel is faced in. Um, Hamas essentially has woven itself into the civilian population and the civilian architecture of the Gaza Strip and that these these urban landscapes, right? In, in that essentially, in order to respond and go after uh, go after Hamas, you essentially there's there is no choice. You have no choice but to attack targets. You know, you you go and uh, send a missile towards what you know to be a Hamas installation while it's right next to an apartment building, okay? And beyond that. As has been proven, everybody said a lot of people who are casual observers of this situation hear claims like that Hamas sets up as military installations or weapon stockpiles in hospitals and schools to use the people in those the students and the patients in those schools and hospitals essentially as, as human shields in order to risk additional civilian casualties to make the Israelis look bad. You, you hear that a claim and you think nah, it's too crazy. There's no way that that's true, but it is true. Okay. Even my guest from a couple of weeks ago, Richard Hanania, who's a, comes from a, has a Palestinian Christian lineage, and he's not necessarily pro-Palestinian, but he's not a super enthusiastic uh, pro-Israel commentator. He even tweeted this out. He said, "You know something? That's something I thought was too crazy to be true, but I went and investigated it, and it's been verified by dozens of sources: uh, Western sources, European sources, U- uh, U.S. sources. No, this is what Hamas does." Hamas essentially is embedded in all uh, in ha- in the civilian life of the Gaza Strip, so it makes it essentially impossible for Israel to respond without also incurring civilian casualties on on the Palestinian side in Gaza. Beyond that, so uh, uh, those who are being critical of Israel right now are, are essentially telling Israel that there's nothing that they can do, that literally there's no responsive action they can take against Hamas or the Palestinians in response to this provocation. Because if you do things like this, if you cut off electricity, if you cut off supplies, if you say, you know something, we've allowed this humanitarian aid to flow into Gaza over the last couple of years, Hamas is just intercepting it. And instead of using it to build a productive society for their citizens, they're using it to build terrorist capabilities, which is what they're doing. Um, you, you're Essentially, the Israelis are left with no option. But this is, of course, nonsense. This is insanity. Okay, so uh, another former guest of mine, Wilfred Riley, seems to be one of the more clear-headed thinkers on this entire topic and acknowledging some of the practical realities once you get past the bumper stickers of, of you know, oh, the, the occupation and Palestinians are living in an open-air prison. Well, hey, they're living in an open-air prison. It's interesting how the prisoners in this, oh, the inmates in this open-air prison seem to be able to accumulate massive stockpiles of weapons. You see any other prison situation where the prisoners are able to, you know, essentially uh, create a stockpile of weapons that could take out half the countries on Earth like Norway, you know, the Hamas versus Norway. Hamas is winning. OK, that's an interesting position. A lot of resources for supposedly uh, inmates in an open air prison are able to accumulate. Um, but Wilfred Riley has a very has some very clear headed thoughts here. Uh, for one instance, one, you do not have a moral duty to feed your enemies or keep their lights on for free during war. The essential, uh, the uh, excessively empathetic need to be kept far away from all positions of power. Wilford acknowledges just the realities of war. When a country, when uh, one another group attacks you, what simply the rules of engagement are that have been, you know, Western society and humanity have operated on for thousands of years. As he mentions, Hamas committed acts, mass rapes, border breakings, hostage taking that have been defined as acts of war in the West and the Islamic world for at least 1500 years. They are now on the receiving end of a military campaign that will cause unfortunate collateral damage. This is not hard. The idea that if someone starts a war with you, they can avoid fighting by locating the military their military bases near where humans live is so insane that I don't even know what to say about it. That's it. 
okay, in, in opposing a, con, a, a contrary sovereign military force attack the Israelis. Now, essentially, the, the Israeli critics are telling them that they cannot respond, they cannot counterattack because those enemies are now hiding behind civilians, okay? Do you understand how crazy this is? Do you understand how illegitimate the Palestinian position here or the Israel critical position is here in saying that, well, if the, if the people that are you're attacking are adjacent to or woven into the fabric of civilian life in the, the territory that you're going after them and you can't attack them, they're essentially left with no response. Okay. So yet again, I'm wondering what is, uh, while I could certainly find some fault with some of the smaller strategic steps the Israelis have taken and then Benjamin Netanyahu has taken in some unnecessary settlement activities in the West Bank in cozying up to what I do think are some relatively zealous kind of hysterical ultra orthodox Jewish groups that aren't I don't that I do not think are that interested in in peace negotiations I can find some fault some a criticism of specific strategic initiatives however beyond that the ultimate culpability of what do you want the Israelis to do you essentially want them to stand there and allow themselves to be attacked. And in response, if they're saying, if the Gazans are saying, Hamas is saying, you need to remove every military installation or all military presence from, from Gaza, you're essentially telling the Israelis, you now, uh, from the territory from which you were attacked, you now must n not just not attack them, you must remove all your oversight, all your surveillance and, uh, and intelligence and all your military and allow yourself to be attacked again. That is what you're telling the Israelis they need to do. It is, of course, illegitimate. So the next aspect of the situation that I think warrants discussion is what I'll call the geopolitical geometry. What's going on with the other sovereign nations in this region that are involved in this conflict? What are the consequences, motivations? How does this all shake out amongst them? Uh, so there's an interesting dynamic in the history of this conflict in that Israel used to, this used to be a battle between Israel and other hostile sovereign nations, right? It was Syria, Egypt, Jordan, a combination of them, Lebanon attacking Israel. You know, battle, war is typically fought amongst nations. That has not been the case the last 20, 30 years. The other sovereign nations have not attacked Israel, and it's all been a battle between these guerrilla forces or these terrorist organizations like Islamic Jihad, the Islamic Brotherhood, Hamas, uh, Fatah in, in the West Bank against Israel. It's not really a battle amongst nations anymore. So what what has been happening? Um, in the, the late 70s, early 80s, Egypt normalized relations uh, with Israel. Egypt was arguably Israel's you know primary, primary rival in the region. Egypt ruler Anwar Sadat decided, you know something, we fought a couple battles against the Israelis, they've beat us, we have to accept that Israel is going to exist and we need to learn to live uh, uh, side by side with them. And Anwar Sadat uh, entered into a peace treaty on behalf of Egypt, normalizing relations with Israel. For all his troubles, he was assassinated by, pal uh, by Muslim terrorists. Well, that's how things go sometimes. Nevertheless, Egypt and Israel, relatively normal relations the last 30, 40 years. Um, now, Egypt, Israel's main uh, sovereign rival in the region is Iran. And this particular situation is now all emanating from and, and what is most impacted by it uh, is the rivalry in the region between the Saudi Arabians and the Iranians because Iran is a Shiite Muslim nation. Uh, Saudi Arabia is the most prominent Sunni Muslim nation. And Saudi Arabia has been warming up to Israel quite a bit over recent years because they're arguably more concerned with the rise of Iran than they are concerned with Israel. So there's been a coalition forming between Israel and the Saudis and the Sunni nations on the one hand 
hand and Iran on the other hand. Uh, Iran, being that they do not want that coalition to come together as a counterweight to the to them in the region, has been arming Hamas, even though Hamas is a Sunni group, although there's somewhat, you know, uh, Iran is willing to uh, is willing to cast aside their hostilities with the Sunnis to fund Hamas because they know that they are their weapon there. They're able to weaponize that against the Israelis. Iran mediated a truce between Syria and Hamas a few years ago in 2017. They've been very vocally uh, supporting Hamas. They've been willfully funding them, give them about $100 million a year. In 2021, a member of the Iran Revolutionary Guard stated that all Hamas rockets were created with Iranian support. Um, so, you know, Iran, Iran has been very blatantly and transparently funding Hamas for quite a while now. As I mentioned, simultaneously uh, warming of relations between Saudi Arabia, some of the other Gulf nations and Israel. It's an open secret that Saudi Arabia and Israel share a lot of military intelligence. Also an open secret that Mohammed bin Salman, uh, the new ruler of Saudi Arabia, at least about five, six years now, is more of a Western oriented leader. He wants Saudi Arabia to be absorbed into modern society, into the West for a lot of business purposes. A lot of people in the L.A. business community can tell me about meeting with uh, representatives of MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, because he wants to get involved in Hollywood tech. You know, he wants to westernize Saudi Arabia. And part of that has been a warming of relations and an aim towards normalization with Israel. One of Donald Trump's foremost foreign policy accomplishments were the Abraham Accords in 2020 that were a set of accords that set the table for a broader peace deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel. This attack was primarily motivated by Iran's desire to break to bust up that coalition to make sure that peace deal does not happen and mission accomplished you go search anything about this topic on the internet right now all the foreign policy experts are acknowledging that that peace deal is now done why is that peace deal done because Saudi Arabia is able to the Saudi Arabian royal family are able to rule they're able to maintain their power keep most of their citizens in a subservient position as long as they don't get too pissed off about it it's like hey royal family you can maintain 90 percent of the wealth in this nation as long as you you know keep our keep us fed um, keep everybody alive and don't piss us off too much however the millions and millions of Saudi Arabian civilians non-members of the ruling class and royal family will allow the Saudi Arabian royal family to maintain power as long as they don't seem to be too on the side of the Israelis against the Palestinians so go look at a political article. The Saudi-Israeli deal is in tatters. CNBC, uh, U.S. officials have been spending a lot of time in Israel and in Saudi Arabia. There was the prospect of a deal, maybe if not by the end of this year, the beginning of next year. People were giving it a 50-50 chance. Right now, you have to give it a zero chance. The Saudis just won't be able to go forward with this right now. Part of the deal would have been Netanyahu reaching some sort of accommodation with the Palestinians, and that's not going to happen right now. So uh, the and yesterday was reported that uh, Mohammed bin Salman met with uh, or spoke with Khomeini and the leaders of Iran for the first time in years yesterday to kind of express solidarity with the Palestinians. And that's unfortunately just how this thing is going to go. Um, the Saudi Arabians cannot be transparent about normalization of relations with Israel uh, during any period where it's seen that Israel that Israel is killing Palestinian civilians, even if, you know, as we've discussed, that is unfortunately a justifiable result of uh, conditions of war. But regardless of the reality of that, Saudi Arabia can't be uh, cutting uh, an Israel 
Israeli peace deal during, you know, anywhere near those circumstances. So that deal is definitely off the table, at least for a couple years. Um, Iran, a big winner of that, of this situation. And also, you know, as I've described in kind of conceiving of whether or not World War Three is going to break out and escalate that that risk, the scenario of risk there is that uh, in response to the Gaza invasion by Israel, Iran attacks Israel from the north. The U.S. intervenes on behalf of the Israelis and this thing spirals out of control. I don't think that's going to happen for for the reasons I just described. Iran has already accomplished its goal. Iran wanted to break up the the Israel-Saudi Arabia uh, peace accords and the coalition against them, and they've done that at least for the time being, at least for, you know, the next two, three years, no Saudi Arabia-Israel peace treaty is occurring. And uh, Iran, why would Iran actually go and uh, escalate this conflict and risk their oil profits, risk their safety, the, si- the safety of their citizens, if they've already accomplished their main objective? And unfortunately, they have. And for the last prong of this issue that I want to discuss, oh, we cannot forget the American culture wars because this is a defining moment for these culture wars that have been festering now for about a decade in the exposure and the revelation for a lot of people that there really has been a cancerous element growing on the progressive side uh, from this progressive activist movement. And that, you know, something that a lot of people could really ignore when it manifested itself around some movements like Me Too or Black Lives Matter or the diversity, equity and inclusion uh, uh, apparatus. And things of that nature uh, that people a lot of stuff that people could well, it convince themselves was righteous or they could dismiss some of the more toxic elements of it but they can no longer dismiss it it's kind of typified by a tweet by a writer named julia iofi i believe is the way that she pronounced her last name she's a writer for the atlantic and a pretty left of center progressive writer she tweeted out until the last few days the phenomenon of western lefties defending barbarism in the name of a desired utopia uh, egalitarian ideal was a historical abstraction to me and what what is she describing? She's describing how these these uh, progressive movements over the last decade that seem to be very aggressive about, as I said, diversity, equity, inclusion, equity in particular, um, in you know adopting such frameworks and terminology as decolonization and things of that nature, um, could all be kind of dismissed. You know, once again, you could see how you could look at the circumstances of Western civilization. Um, you know how Western nations had won wars of conquest in ancient eras, and how that there were some injustices in modern Western societies, but you wouldn't defend barbarism or defend the murder of innocent people and civilians in the name of those causes. And some people like myself were saying, well, no, there's there's a morally bankrupt framework at the beginning, at the at the core of all this. And while that, you know, you can you can ignore how it manifests itself under certain circumstances, it's eventually going to manifest itself under more intense and, and more meaningful circumstances. And that's what's happened here. Um, another tweet or a post from the, the satire set, the Babylon B, that really, once again, Again, I think encapsulates all this is, and this is a joke, but Harvard student leaves lecture on microaggressions to attend kill the Jews rally. And it's like, ha ha. But that is the the moral framework that they've been operating under and, and uh, the exposure of what a lot of campus groups, a lot of students, a lot of administrators at the top universities in America have been and uh, how they've been reacting to this situation over the last week or so has really opened up the eyes for a lot of people. And let's look at some of that. You've got uh, Northwestern's University, uh, Northwestern's Middle Eastern and North African Student Association putting out a statement that they grieve for the martyrs and civilians lost in this time. 
time. Columbia University's Palestinian Solidarity Group. We remind Columbia students the Palestinian struggle for freedom is rooted in international law under which occupied peoples have the right to resist the occupation of their land. Over 30 groups at Harvard said of the 1,200 Israelis who have been slaughtered that the apartheid regime is the only one to blame. You've got a Yale professor, Zarina Gruwal, saying settlers are not civilians. This is not hard. Uh, the amount of people, the amount of the people who are supposed to be members of sophisticated, sense-making, important organizations and universities, the top higher education institutions in, in America are justifying the slaughter of civilians based on, and what are they justifying it on? It's this broken moral framework that has taken over in the progressive movement over the last decade. And it used to not always be like this. As I've said before many times on this podcast, I was a Democrat voter till pretty recently, right? All the way through the Clinton years, the Obama years, even up to uh, to the, you know, into the 2010s. Then all of a sudden I start noticing some really toxic stuff coming from that side of the aisle uh, around 2013, 14, um, the, the demonization of the notion of colorblindness and like, wait a second, didn't we just spend 30, 40 years trying to get people to judge themselves, judge everybody on the content of their character and their behavior as opposed to their skin color and identity characteristics? And all of a sudden that gets dismissed. The notion of decolonization. I was like, oh, wait, you know, there were a number of, of wars of conquest fought during ancient pre-industrial times and there were some unfortunate, there were some uh, terrible things done to certain groups. But now the whole idea of modern civilization is that we have now bury the hatchet. There's a truce. We've we've decolonized, you know, and uh, most of the, there's no, you know, generally in modern age, uh, most of these nations have been given self-governance once again. And, you know, we're not here to now punish the members of multicultural integrated societies for what happened in 1643. But no, all of a sudden you need to be guilted about what happened all the way back there. And these really radical notions um, that had been dismissed previously, you know, a, as we came to a more and look at look at who was elected, the Bill Clintons of the world as the leaders of liberalism and progressivism and, and the democratic side said, okay, we're, we're going to dispense with that radicalism through the 90s and the 2000s um, and, and not adopt these ridiculous ideas. But that came back with a vengeance in the 2010s. And it, you've seen it, uh, it, manifested, it manifested itself with a lot of these progressive movements over the last few years. Black Lives Matter, Me Too, like I said, the, the kind of more holistic diversity, equity, inclusion bureaucracy and a lot of people like Julia Ophi ignored that. And they're now expressing that, wait a second, we can't ignore it any longer. And I hate to listen. I know some people of good faith. I know some good people who were involved on uh, behalf of the Black Lives Matter movement generally. But if you look at the organization, the people who were in charge of the Black Lives Matter movement and organization, they, these are people of radical, you know, essentially socialism light uh, and, and really toxic. You know, uh, anything is uh, anything is justified as long as it's on behalf of the oppressed beliefs. And that now got exposed. You have no idea how many DMs I've gotten from people that donated to Black Lives Black Lives Matter organizations. You know, left wing people who have now seen over the last couple of days. Go look, Black Lives Matter Los Angeles, Black Lives Matter Chicago, issuing statements very blatantly justifying the slaughter of innocent civilians. Black Lives Matter Chicago put out a, a visual graphic of a Palestinian a parachuting. Like they're very much celebrating this as a, a, um, a this as resistance, as freedom fighting, right? Justifying and celebrating the slaughter of innocents because uh, it all seems to be justified by the notion 
of marginalized groups that whoever is on the downside of the power power differential is justified in taking any action to get off the downside of the power differential to fight back against their supposed oppressors and the julias of the world oh oh all of a sudden oh we've we we just noticed that these groups are justifying all types of unethical things simply on, for the fact that they're on behalf of the supposedly marginalized and we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break Some more commentary that I think really encapsulates this. Uh, Ariel Davidson, academia is realizing that it admitted a bunch of people who just don't hate the Western theory, but in actuality as well. It's like, oh, oh, these people hate everything about Western society. Uh, they hate our entire systems, our structure, our cultures, and want to bring it down. It's not just a matter of identifying a few instances or pockets of injustice and ironing those out and making those right. No, they want to bring the entire system down. They hate everything about our civilization and our nations. And it's been a really revelatory moment for so many people. Like I said, tons of DMs. Man, I can't believe I donated to that organization. I really had no idea. I mean, this was a real wake-up call that these movements that had this facade of righteousness that seemed to be fighting on the cause of, of the just and the righteous I, I, were total bullshit. No, it was just resentment. It was just wanting to break down that they believed that they were on the downside. They were the marginalized in whatever the system is that's currently operating. And so they wanted to take the system down just to elevate their own power. They finally woke up to this. Another Twitter comment. There's only two positive things that have come out of this conflict. It ripped the mask off the most obnoxious HR department hall monitors on the Internet. And we don't have to be gaslit about what they mean by decolonization of America anymore. Decolonization, what a ridiculous notion in 2023. Uh, this one, uh, apparently this is a cultural influencer. Her name's Najma Sharif in response to like literally the day after the massacre. This was her response. What did y'all think decolonization meant? Vibes, papers, essays, losers. Uh, she's very much celebrating and justifying the slaughter as a tool, as a, a valid method of decolonization and fighting back against the oppressors. This tweet got 77,000 likes, 77,000. That's how many people support this way of thinking. And I think there's so many people that got, you know, casually involved on behalf of some of these progressive movements, kind of casually supported it. Weren't, you know, they, they might have gone to a march in 2020, donated $200 to Black Lives Matter, um, and that, you know, they, they're whatever company they work for hosts a bunch of DIE sessions and, and you know they'll tacitly participate in those not really push back against it they didn't realize that there's a common thread that runs through this entire movement that justifies all this that is toxic that is unethical and so I keep on coming back to all these people and a lot of these people who when I started speaking out against this stuff let's call it 2015 2016 a lot of people thought I was I was overstating it I was exaggerating a lot of people like ah Matt why why you're overstating what this is going to mean this isn't going to impact society at all I was like did you realize this is now the governing ethos of our most important institutions you can dismiss Harvard all you want Yale the people who come out of these institutions are, still get the most important jobs and the whole notion that oh as soon as they get into the the real world they're going to wise up or oh they're going to be punished no their their culture their beliefs now dominate all uh, all the institutions this is who gets to dictate the terms internally at big think tanks public organizations corporations right this stuff matters and all of a sudden everyone's uh, oh my god i cannot believe that this is what's going on at harvard it's like th this is important stuff right if you let it grow it's a cancer if you let the cancer metastasize as it has you wake up and you have a society like this where you have tons of groups that felt comfortable celebrating the slaughter of innocent civilians you want to know why because all their other stupid ideas didn't get any pushback 
For the last 10 years, they've been operating with impunity. They've been expressing these toxic, horrendous ideas and been celebrated. They get all the important jobs. They get, oh, oh sorry, got to meet our diversity numbers. Okay, so whoever happened, you know, this they, them, who uh, was the head of the, the New, uh, NYU Law, uh, the, the New York University Law School Top 5 top five Law School Bar Association, uh, expressed uh, sent out a statement expressing complete solidarity and celebration of Hamas's activities here, all in the name of the oppressed all in the name of decolonization and whatnot. And I was like, wait a second, did you guys not realize that this is what we were cultivating amongst the highest echelons of academia and the professional world? Did you, were you asleep for the past 10 years? People like Julia Iofi were. When she tweets this out, until the last few days, the phenomenon of Western lefties defending barbarism in the, in the name of a desired utopia was a historical abstraction to me. Well, you've been asleep for the past decade. This isn't a historical abstraction, okay? They've been supporting, they've been celebrating low-level barbarism, some version of toxic morale, inverted morality for the last 10 years, and you've been indulging it. A lot of people out there have been indulging this stuff. And finally now, when the, con oh, it's not so cute anymore, it's not so casual, this is how it eventually was, it was inevitably going to manifest itself, and a lot of people are waking up to that. If I am looking for a silver lining to this entire situation, it is the exposure of these people as moral frauds complete and utter moral frauds. So that's it. I hope I have given you a grounding in the history of this conflict, some of the contemporary geopolitical concerns, and an understanding of how this has impacted or exposed in a number of aspects of the American culture war. And uh, and obviously, this is going to reverberate across the fissure, across America's cultural fissure and this culture war for quite some time now. But it has been revelatory, uh, as I hope will also be revelatory, is my conversation in just a moment with Charlie Arnold. Um, another incident that, once again, you can, you can separate it from what I'm discussing now, but it all ties together. There's a common thread, uh, an instance of uh, an exposure of one of the big Me Too incidents around Major League Baseball pitcher Trevor Bauer, where he was demonized, had his life ruined, and now has exposed that it was based on complete false accusations that he can very clearly prove were done just to extort him by a female accuser. And the media it doesn't seem to be, that legacy media at least does not seem to be too interested in commenting or acknowledging that they were wrong and they ruined his life based on false assumptions right so we're going to express that and we're going to discuss that in just a moment and you know how uh, this once again this cancer that i've discussed the the and the poisoning of our media the poisoning of the media ecosystem does matter because it impacts actual people and while uh, once a lot of people can ignore that this trevor bauer guy got his life completely ruined based false accusations and the media was complicit in that this all ties together for the same reason it's operating under the same moral rubric of why we we excused so much bad behavior that is now manifesting itself in groups very blatantly and flagrantly celebrating the actions of Hamas and the slaughter of innocent civilians. So that chat is going to be coming up in just a moment. It's 2023 and we've reached the epilogue or perhaps the hangover phase of Me Too, where situations that arose in the hysteria of prior years can now be seen more clearly. One such situation was that of Major League Baseball pitcher Trevor Bauer. Bauer was accused of sexual assault and misconduct by multiple women. The legal system appeared to absolve him with no arrest nor charges being pressed and dismissal of a petition for a restraining order by one of his accusers. But that did not seem to matter to Major League Baseball, who suspended him for over 300 games, nor the sports media, who universally condemned him as a sexual predator and drove him out of the league. Now evidence has come to light that Bauer was innocent all along, the victim of a blatant extortion attempt by one of his accusers, Lindsey Hill. This incident and its treatment in the sports media has much to teach us about how the court of public opinion works these days. Here joining us to discuss is Charlie Arnold, who hosts the, the show Outkick the Morning for sports and culture site Outkick. Charlie, thank you so much for joining us. 
I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure. So I gave kind of the 10,000 foot view of the Bauer situation. Maybe you can give us a little bit more uh, in terms of detail about the accusations and the recent facts that came to light absolving him. Yeah, well, it's really a shame what happened to Trevor Bauer, but it's not something new. It's something that we've seen happen to not just several athletes, but several men uh, throughout the past several years as the Me Too movement has really gained traction. Uh, Trevor Bauer, obviously a star pitcher for the Dodgers, he had accusations brought against him uh, by a woman. We, you know, at, at the time did not know her name. Her name will just for the purposes of being able to reference her easily now, Lindsay Hill. Um, she made accusations that he sexually assaulted her uh, during one of their nights together. And specifically, she said that he choked her out. Uh, so automatically, the league started to investigate without any real evidence or having him gone to trial and being found guilty. And and they deemed him uh, worthy of a, like you said, more than 300 game suspension. I, it was it was minimized a little bit, but still it mm-hmm. was close. I think when it was all said and done, something like 194 games, something around those lines. Yeah, it was a record, right? I mean, it was, nobody, it was never it was, leveled this. Yeah, I mean, that's. Couple seasons and even reduced down as about a season. And between that and the sports media universally condemning him once again, based on pure accusation, even though some of the facts didn't seem to line up. I mean, he's no longer in baseball, correct? Well, no, he's he's no longer in MLB. Uh, He's playing over in Japan right now. But point is, is without any of the like you said, any of the real evidence being present, uh, he was automatically deemed a sexual predator. He was said to have violated. And that's why he was given the suspension, the league's domestic violence policy. And just like that, I mean, you're essentially presumed guilty, right? Because otherwise they would have said, you know, we're going to see how this all pans out. Uh, and so his livelihood was essentially ruined. I would I would go as far to say as his life was ruined. And then. It comes the time when this this suit was settled in court, which was interesting because I've always thought the term settled means that someone gets paid. Well, in this case, I have learned that that's not what it has to mean. And the case was settled, meaning both sides just decided to back out. They were no longer uh, accusing or or charging either side with with any wrongdoing. They're just going their separate ways. And after the settlement occurred, Bauer was able to come forward with evidence that was hard facts that were presented that showed specifically Lindsay Hill saying to her friend before their sexual encounter took place that she was going to have Bauer choke her out and then extort him. And that is exactly what she did. Yeah. Yeah. And just to, to, frame this for everybody. So the settlement in this case, typically there's an exchange of either money or an agreement not to comment, uh, confidentiality. That That's consideration that's exchanged between the parties. Say, okay, in exchange for me dropping this suit, um, you give me money and or you agree not to comment on this because we don't want the facts of this being disclosed, right? In this case, no money exchanged hands and Trevor Bauer was under no gag order or confidentiality restriction. And he was, yeah. And he was it. That obviously is in furtherance and supportive of the claim that like, okay, she didn't have any case that the facts were so, uh, uh, the facts were so unfriendly to her that she didn't get anything out that, that there was a bargain that she didn't get anything out of uh, just to give you guys a little bit of an idea of, of what, uh, revelations did come to light. Here's some of the text messages from Hill to either friends, <clears throat> either friends of hers or accomplices 
Uh, next next version, star pitcher for the Dodgers. What should I steal? Answer, take his money. I'm going to his house on Wednesday. I already have my hooks in. Asked how she plans to, uh, oh, she, bitch, you better secure the bag. Asked how she plans to do that. Answers a text, need need daddy to choke me out. Being an absolute whore to try to get in, get in on his $51 million. So like blatantly admitting that she set this up to lull him into a situation where she would be, give him the impression that she was consenting to rough sex, get physical damage. Damage and then use that to claim that she that this was uh, uh, not consensual, that she was physically harmed or insulted, and then use that to extort him for you know millions of dollars. That's like blatantly what she was admitting to. Yeah, and this is the most disgusting, immoral type of woman. And what sickens me about all this, and I think sickens Trevor Bauer, Trevor Bauer fans, any man who has ever been wrongfully anyone accused, anyone decent, anyone decent. Uh, although a lot of people won't come forward and admit admit that, which I'm sure we'll mm-hmm. get get into in a little bit, um, sure. is the fact that the Me Too movement was founded on women coming forward when before they didn't feel comfortable or courageous enough to come forward with claims like this. And we gave them such grounds to make these statements and put away these actual sexual predators that exist in our world. But it has come to the point now where we're finding women like Lindsay Hill who have horrible motivations and intentions looking to do nothing but gold dig and we just take their claims as fact and don't Mm -hmm. do any real investigating and we see men like trevor bauer we see men like russell brand uh the list goes on matariza uh being taken down uh, Mm -hmm. for for nothing and it based on accusation alone yeah and and for that i have said i think the me too movement needs to come to an end or it needs to really be evaluated and probably handled very differently moving forward and how it's handled, it's the, the media's kind of been the steward of Me Too, right? And that the media exposing these stories, writing about them, how the media reacts is kind of the gauge and the barometer of what's going on with Me Too and the relationship between the genders and whatnot and, and what the, the, the societal standard is for abuse or misconduct, right? And it's really interesting how the media treated this situation because once, and this is something that comes up often, the accusation gets a, a, a ton, you know, you they see it all the time. The, the initial accusation gets... 10,000 likes the retraction and apology gets 600 likes and this is something that keeps on repeating itself over and over because once again the the legacy media universally condemned this man based on accusation and we'll get to why they didn't have such a great relationship with Trevor Bauer in the first place but now with these revelations that he was completely extorted that the victim was completely lying that this man was victimized in his life ruined based on false false claims and you'd think that the media if they were acting ethically and decently would would account for that would acknowledge that and say hey we we got this one wrong but they're doing everything to deflect from that here's how espn described the events the the revelations that you just described in terms of the settlement with no money exchange no confidentiality restrictions and and disclosure exposure of lindsey hill's text message this is how espn put it former major league pitcher trevor bauer and a woman accused of beat uh, who accused him of beating and sexually assaulting her in 2021 have settled their legal dispute bauer's attorney shared in a statement if you just read that headline you have no idea what happened here you have no, no idea that it was not a set you would get the impression anybody walking away from reading that headline would feel that trevor bauer settled this case like anything else and paid his his accuser to go away but that's not what happened well just like i told you before i mean unlike you because you're actually an attorney uh mm-hmm. you read into and understand things much differently than us common folk uh i would read that because even when i told you i was so surprised when i saw oh a settlement can mean that no one was paid off. 
uh, that nothing ultimately ended up happening. I was I was mind blown. I was like, oh, my gosh, well, this will make me now moving forward, evaluate sentences like that very differently. But yeah, to anyone who is just reading and not given any of the other information, that's it. They're given this case was settled. It's done. He was not found, you know, or he's not you know, going to go to jail um, or, you know, being charged with anything. You would just think that, oh, yeah, he paid her off. So for me, this is a horrible misrepresentation, especially when you consider the fact that they were so quick to condemn him when he was accused of sexual misconduct in the first place. Uh, It was all anybody was talking about for a little bit. So you would think they would have the decency to go back and say, listen, we would like to offer an apology to Trevor Bauer because not only was he found to be not guilty, but horrible, disgusting evidence was found, you know, to to show just how immoral is it? Yeah. His accuser was. I just think that's that's the right thing to do. And and we didn't see that coming from anywhere except from a very few non mainstream outlets. Yeah. And this is very telling about the sports media, its trajectory, where it's gone over the last few years, because, you know, ESPN gold standard in sports media for decades. You had some more legacy media, digital offshoots, CBS Sports, Yahoo Sports, and the like over the past few years. The Athletic, which sopped, you know, scrounged up a lot of writers and broadcasters from these legacy organizations, and they kind of all uh, uh, exist with a certain, you know, within a certain single lane of cultural valence that they've taken a bit of a, a leftward shift. That they've been um, um, conducive, they've been receptive to the the progressive social movements of the last few years, and then two sports outlets, yours, Outkick, and then Barstool Sports, seem to be the out. Liars. They seem to be the the media organizations that have sprung up in response to the leftward political turn of the legacy sports media and said, well, wait a second. Uh, this doesn't represent a lot of your audience. It doesn't represent a lot of sports fans. Um, and and so, you know, if that appetite is not being served properly, we're going to serve it. And both of those organizations have served more traditional male and sports fan taste to great success. And it's interesting because they also happen to intersect with who's handling this situation more responsibly because you go read the barstool headline and the barstool headline was like hey yeah lindsey uh bowers accuser shown to be lying right don't be a skank yeah 100 percent. so it's interesting that uh the the kind of alternative news uh, alternative sports media outlets like yours and barstool seem in stark contrast to the legacy outlets um and it's not just about you know celebrating more of a rah-rah frat boy style of sports you know viewership and celebration but in terms of even treating you know me uh even treating incidents like this yeah. And I think it's also the way that men are viewed uh, is the reason why there's mm-hmm. there's a, a lot of mainstream media that won't give them a fair shake. I think something that I constantly talk about and something that's important for me to get a message across is the idea of toxic masculinity. Uh, it drives me crazy. I actually on um, the first episode of my show. I wore a shirt that said toxic masculinity is hot <laughs> because I don't think toxic masculinity exists. I think toxicness exists, but mm-hmm. I don't think that it's assholes exist we used we used to call toxic ma- masculinity assholes we're like oh that's that person's yeah, exactly. an asshole you're yeah, a we didn't make it this entire categorical thing yeah it doesn't mean if you're a man doesn't automatically uh, automatically make you toxic if you're a woman doesn't automatically make you toxic but i think a lot of people have just put men you know especially the most manly manly of men into this box and they're they're considered to be toxic when really that's just an idea that these these ultra feminists have come up with in order to take the power away from men and give it to themselves. And that's what I see happening here. And that's why I feel like the Me Too, ma- Me Too ma- movement has actually failed both men and women because it's actually stripping men, innocent men of their power and giving it to the wrong women in some cases. And then 
in addition, it's taking the power away from real victims, because when you have women like Lindsay Hill making these egregious claims and statements and in, in, in taking innocent men down and ruining their lives, then what happens when a real victim comes forward and says, hey, a man did this to me automatically? We're going to think back to this case. Anyone who's paying attention, at least. Right. Which, as we've just admitted, is not most people. But they're going to look back and say, well, look what happened to Trevor Bauer. She was lying. So who's to say this woman's not doing the same? And it's yeah. very harmful. It's people want to lament or decry how our society responds to these things, but you have to you have to accept what a reasonable observer is going how a reasonable observer is going to respond. And a reasonable observer, someone who's paying attention, who's watching these things, sees these incidents like the Trevor Bowers because these are these are all the Me Too claims all come out of these private most almost universally come out of these private interpersonal exchanges, right? So it's a matter of credibility. A reasonable rational observer who's trying to judge credibility is going to see these incidents like Lindsay Hill and Trevor Bauer and very reasonably cast some doubt on other accusations or ask for more request more verification or more proof going forward right and, and you can't ask people you can't expect people to just live in this kind of so you know the, this uh, realm of this kind of haze of, of Soviet justice where based on accusation alone or just in service of a cause uh, the facts are kind of you know, molded and shrouded into whatever is going to serve that eventual cause. You have to allow people to to take you know a rational assessment of whatever the facts in a situation happen to be. Um, and this will you know kind of impair some of the credibility of claims going forward. Well, something else that I think people threw their common sense out the window was was the recent incident that stemmed from Michigan football coach Mel Tucker and his accuser. Uh, it's a woman who did some work with the team. She was, I, I think it was, she was referred to as a, a sexual violence prevention advocate. Anyways, she claimed that she and Tucker had a non-consensual relationship and it, you know, therefore she was bringing these claims against him uh, very publicly. And what, or look, was, uh, Charlie, uh, was it that they had some sort of romantic or they yeah, had? So no, she no, they, claimed that she he was getting inappropriate texts from her. Got it. Yeah. Got well, yeah. And, and she claimed that he was masturbating on the phone with her, uh -huh. which obviously as a woman, extremely uncomfortable, right? So automatically your brain says, okay, this is horrible. This poor yeah, this woman, is misconduct. this poor woman, she was subject to such disgusting behavior by this guy who she probably felt because of their relationship working together, uh, mm -hmm. that she was not able to push him off or, or she was forced to endure such that he was you know, in a power stuff. position. Yep. Exactly. But then you look at the rest of the information that comes out. There was something like 27 phone calls that took place between them ranging in in many of the cases up to 30 minutes first of all nobody talks on the phone for 30 minutes i don't even care if it's your best friend or your parent <laughs> you are not on the phone with people for 30 minutes at a time not to mention on multiple occasions on the phone with someone 30 moments at a time some of these calls even taking place after she suggested that this disgusting conduct took place then there was also the text message of her wishing him a happy father's day after she suggested this disgusting behavior take place so at that point, shouldn't we all just throw up our hands and say, OK, this woman is clearly not right in the head. And, and Mel Tucker has, as you know, whether whether or not, you know, maybe he crossed a line um, because maybe he should maybe maybe he shouldn't have interacted with someone he works with in that manner. You know, like, listen, we all make some mistakes, but it was clearly consensual. That's that's the bottom line. And, and there's no crime being committed. Totally. And this is one of these things that falls in that case. And it's something I discuss often um, where incidents that used to be dealt with on a an interpersonal level. Right. Something where there wasn't any violence. There wasn't any necessary misconduct that that there was some flirtation. There was some relationship there and someone might have gone too far. And that w the the threshold for what rises to the uh, rises 
rises to the level of a public controversy or the type of thing that you go after somebody for that you try to impair and harm or harm their career. I mean, that bar has been lowered so much. And that starts to look that's what indulges these types of people who seem to be have their own agenda. Either they're pathological, they like attention, they have grievances, and they're using these public accusations at they're weaponizing them. They're using it as a tool yeah. to see to simply harm people they don't like. Well, and Ime Udoka comes to mind, too. I know that was a few years ago, but the Celtics coach who was found to have had an inappropriate relationship with his assistant uh, when really it was it was just so clear to me from that very beginning. And I, and I was actually a little more vocal about this. I'm like, listen, the woman's married. Obviously, if it comes out, that's that's horrible. Like her marriage sure. probably goes under. She's painted as, you know, a, a woman with with not so high of standards or morals. It's just there's so many incidents of this where I just feel bad for men. And I I felt this way for for a while, and this was even Ime Odoko was when I was at ESPN, and I started talking about it a little bit. I started stepping out a little bit more, saying, "Listen, I can't say that I find him in the wrong." Uh, yeah, but know, these standards talk. for public controversy are are incorrect, are skewed, yes. right? And that whatever whatever society's customs and standards are for what what will harm your career that will subject you to public controversy uh embarrassment that you know you the the media that the sports media and the woke you know writers at the athletic need to start getting all um uh, get up on their high horse and start you know lambasting you on social media whatever the standard for that is it's it's skewed it's not an appropriate or healthy standard anymore and i think we can all agree to that yes. and in th- th- and having those inappropriate standards kind of tossing all uh, uh critical faculties out the window is what gets us into these trevor bauer situations but it the media keeps on not learning its lesson it seems yeah uh it's it's keeps being repeated uh but that's what happens uh because i feel like everyone it's like everyone on the left has to be on the same page right uh so they all decide oh we you know condemn certain types of men like we don't stand for toxic masculinity uh you know we lift up feminists um and they it's just interesting because you know really the left is comprised i would say it's kind of of like a a coalition of like uh, like different types of people like on the fringe uh and there's there's like tons of internal contradictions uh so they don't really know where to stand on certain issues like we want to we want to lift up feminists uh but then we are like so quick to like oppress women in other circumstances um and this is just kind of how i see it as well i just feel like they they try to be on the same page but there's just tons of contradictions all the time and um there's a certainly it is certainly a lack of consistency but more important the more important uh issue that you bring up is the politicization of the sports media in general because it wasn't always this way like sports was like kind of uniquely not political for so long and i mean i can kind of track you know what i noticed myself over the course of the last 10 years which is something that you seem to have noticed in parallel in your your own way and that you're sitting around one day i was kind of a you know pretty consistent say mild left of center voter in the late 2000s early 2010s i was on twitter a lot i wasn't a member of the sports media but i was involved in a lot of sports discussions with a lot of people who worked at espn they started following me because they liked my basketball commentary and god knows what um and you know we we shared similar political views they were all kind of like moderate mild left wing you know obama voter but not super enthusiastic or progressive and then all of a sudden Around in the period from maybe 2012 to 2014, 15, right around there, I saw this like really aggressive shift from all these writers. All so once I didn't, I I did not make my money 
from working at any of these these organizations. But these people were employed by ESPN, Yahoo Sports, CBS Sports, The Athletic, whatnot. And all of a sudden, as these networks started to take a, a turn in an aggressive political direction, they took an aggressive political turn as well. And I couldn't quite tell. I was like, are these people just trying to stay sanitized and stay in good graces at their network? Do they really believe it? Or is this just an interesting example of groupthink where you're part of this social group? You know, because now, like, think about like 20, 30 years ago when everything was print, uh, uh, you know, the person who worked for the St. Louis Gazette and the person who worked at the Orange County Register, uh, they didn't interact with each other that much. Now, all all journalists and even sports journalists, they're all on Twitter and they're all on Facebook. They're all on Instagram together and they're interacting with each other every day. And so I was like, is this just an ossification of, of all these views of people who need to stay in the good graces amongst their social group and their peer group? Um, and, yes. you know, it's, it was really you think that's what the explanation I, well, is. I, I think there's a few things. I think I think one, um, your opinions are influenced and dictated by your employer. You look at ESPN, Disney being their parent company. It, it makes sense, right? You Where they need to fall. Um, but I also think that it's not just the people that exist that already were at the companies. I think it's a lot of the hiring decisions. I mean, you see a lot of people being swapped out for different types of people. Sure. Um, you see Based a lot more on some interesting standards. You, you've got you've got a lot of minorities being hired, which mm -hmm. I mean, listen, we all can agree that everyone deserves a fair shake. Right. Sure. It's, it's, but it should be always a meritocracy. And we have definitely lost sight of that. Um, but I think that that's also what helps to influence decisions and create more of that. Uh, we're all on the same page environment because they are looking to only hire people that they feel will fit their narrative and their goals and, and their optics. Uh, and it, it's, yeah, it's very obvious. I mean, even when I came to OutKick and Fox, I, I was unfollowed by several members of the media <laughs> who I called friends, who I called friends, either ESPN yeah. and otherwise. And I got unfollows and it all made sense to me with the people that unfollowed me. There wasn't all, I was never, I was never like, wait, why would they unfollow everyone? I was like, well, that makes sense. Oh, well, sense. yeah. Good, good riddance. Right. But, but it, but it's, it's just sad because I don't even really know that these people know what they're upset about. I think that everybody, I, I like to refer to people as sheep. Um, and I think that's what a lot of people are. I don't even think that they understand politics. I don't even think they really understand like what's going on in the world and, and what they're upset about or what they should be upset about or what they should be pushing back against or what they should be supporting. I think they just hear another person saying something. They say, okay. Yeah, that sounds good. And and that's and that seems to be the consensus here, so I'll just go along with it. Yeah, but the the dynamic that you just identified, which is, you know, low information people who, you know, uh, uh, uh attach themselves to certain beliefs or causes um, on low information, that's something that's always been active, right? That's always been at play in our society. What's interesting to me, and the interesting question to pose and try to answer is, why did sports media fall victim to this in, in a progressive left-wing slant over the last eight or so years, right? Like that's something I still can't quite wrap my mind around. And I feel like, you know, your organization, your boss, I mean, it's something that he's, uh, you know, and, and Clay and he, he his success has kind of been a bit of an outgrowth of that. And him saying, you know, similarly, he the two, the two guys who benefit the most from this are Portnoy and Clay Travis. Mm -hmm. And they're sitting around in the early 2010s, not politically, 
particularly political and just saying, well, wait a second. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not. Everybody else is going to shift. I'm not going to shift with them. I'm going to continue to serve more traditional uh, male, uh, sport, you know, uh, sports fan taste. And out of that, you kind of become this victim and it almost it forces you to become political and outkick has embraced that a little bit more than Barstool has. But I think if you sit there and ask Dave Portnoy, he'd be like, yeah, I, I didn't think I was going to become some like figure of, you know, a uh, uh, figure of right wing subver- subversion against you know progressive causes. But with ESPN and the legacy media going so hard to the left and embracing all this progressivism, if you just try to have a normal sports organiz- a sports media organization from 2010, it's like you're automatically identified as right wing. Yeah. And I think that it's not even a lot of it's not even politically driven. I think in some cases we push to make it more politically driven just so it can be have that stark contrast from the ESPNs of the world. Um, But a lot of the issues that are being debated or expressed and talked about aren't a political issue. It's just you're you're coming at it with a just authentic common sense standpoint yeah uh, that a lot of people just can't grasp anymore right everything has to be made into this i mean i just i looked at the most recent example i mean that the uh comments made on espn's new uh, streaming series skin in the game where the athlete compared the contracts to athletes to the to the new slaves and like contracts were the new chains that are being put on slaves and i'm like I'm sorry. Am I missing something? You are a athlete. This is your job that you you chose. Get and paid also very you, well. And also, you get, well, first of all, you get to play a sport for a living. Like, I'm so jealous. You're getting paid millions of dollars in a lot of cases to play a sport for a living. Okay? That's not a real job. All right? That's that's the the biggest blessing that someone in, that could ever be bestowed on someone in their lives. 100%. And you are choosing to go down this path and sign this contract You're voluntarily like, entering into an agreement as yeah. an adult. Yes. So for you to then say athletes are the new slaves and, and then have this, this narrative push forward that like, you don't say something on a platform like that, that you wouldn't want someone else to repeat. Like that's just irresponsible. So it's just, when I see stuff like that, I'm like, Holy crap. We have totally lost, lost it the in this plot. World. And that, that was an ESPN show. So yeah, it's this new. It's a, it's a five part series. It's on ESPN Plus. It's called Skin in the Game, and it's it's being uh, hosted by this anti racist. Um, oh, like, Abram Kendi. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. uh, unbelievable. No, the idea. First of all, that guy's an imbecile. I mean, he's a mediocre intellect, and his principles are completely toxic and unhealthy. And the the fact that, but that that's what I'm still and you know one of the ongoing projects of my podcast is trying to figure out how these ideas gain currency. How someone like Ibram uh, uh, Kendi, like ESPN, would have been embarrassed to air that view in a million years, like uh, up until maybe 2014. They never won simply for uh, uh, not to alienate so many members of their of their audience and you know the motives behind that we're going to discuss in a second but also because they're like wait wait a second they would dismiss this idea as nonsensical which it completely is and then all of a sudden and I saw it with all these guys you know people that I kind of became friendly with on Twitter that were you know sports writers of some sort and like they they all of a sudden started to champion and get enthusiastic about these ideas that like two three years ago they, they never would have given currency it never would have allowed to take hold at all but that's what you're seeing here. Um, and so, you know, and someone as someone who has gone to one of the, you know, now the kind of renegade alternative sports media outlets, like the people that, you know, are there, you think people who are still at these legacy outlets, they're just keeping their mouth shut. Um, do you think that they are just good company people? Are they true believers? Like, what have you noticed? 
Yeah, I think that I think there's a handful of true believers. Uh, I think there's a, um, yeah, I definitely think there's a handful of true believers. Uh, I think everyone else are sheep. And I think that then those who aren't sheep uh, don't have the courage to speak up because they want to keep their jobs, which listen, I get it. It's it's totally fair to not want to upset your employer and you got a good thing going and you can just leave politics out of it. And just keep your mouth shut. All, all the listen, all the power to you. I mean, it would be nice yeah, to very have very ambitious, competitive fields in the first place. Yeah, Absolutely. it would be nice to have more people speaking up because there are some really toxic issues that are plaguing society right now. But I totally understand. But I also know that I have people in my inbox when I post things that are saying, "Oh my gosh, this is awesome! Thank you for posting this. Thank you for being a voice." And I'm like, "Could you could you publicly co- comment? Because that would be nice to ha- have other people see that you support me and that you feel this way." But that's just that's just not how it goes. Um, but I know that they exist. I I have I have hard evidence that they exist, and it makes me very happy. Yeah, but it's just so unhealthy to be for societies and organizations to be operating like this with so many people sitting there, not just uh, afraid There's no to air. There's no free speech because no free speech is gone. Yeah, and here's but and here's I want to take that one step further because you know we all and it's a, a entirely. Uh, a noble principle of free speech, but it's not just that there that people are unafraid to air their views. They're unafraid to air the more sensible view. They're unafraid to speak the truth, the accurate. The, the accurate view is note that the idea that uh, uh, professional athletes entering into voluntary contracts as, uh, as adults, eighteen ages or over, for millions of dollars is what everybody, every other person does in a capitalist economy that has obligations on both sides of that contract, and it is not slavery. Okay, you are now. The people who are now being intimidated to, into silence are the people who have the more sensible view. You can, you're can you now afraid to express the, the the correct view. So not only is it unhealthy that certain people aren't are afraid to express their views and you know don't have freedom of speech as a basic foundational principle, they the the correct point of view, the more sensible, well thought out, rational point of view is the one that's being shrouded. Is the one that's being that that is being negated, and that's something that's gone on for way too long. And like I said, the out the outgrows are the success of an outkick, the success of a barstool, and the ESPNs are sitting around there wondering what the hell what the hell happened, you know. And uh, uh, you know, a guy that I'm friends with and that I think you're a fan of too, Ethan Strauss, who instead of going to an outkick or a barstool, said, you know something, I'm just going to write about everything that you're not allowed to write about at ESPN on Substack, and now he has a very successful Substack, because he just said, you know, he was a super liberal guy, he was more liberal than I was, and then he a starts lot of noticing. People, a lot of people were liberal back, you know, liberal back in the day, I would say, put themselves on that side of things, uh, because sure. I think for a lot of people, especially when you're younger, you look at things from more of a social vantage point rather rather than um, rather than practical sure yeah and, and and i think as you get older you find that you do become more conservative because you're making money and you're seeing where your money's going and how sure but the the stand the rubric changed the, the oh no no i'm not saying yeah. i'm not saying things didn't get more extreme i'm just saying i think a lot of or, people yeah but i guess what i'm saying is that the view that made you liberal or conservative has changed right because like yes. i didn't change at all like i i I believe pretty much the same stuff that I did. It's gotten very extreme. It's gotten very extreme uh, to where, you know, you're like, oh, wait, yeah. At first I was I was advocating for equal rights, which I still advocate for. But now it seems by advocating for equal rights, I'm also advocating for biological men to be let into the women's bathrooms, as an example. And women's Um, prisons and so forth. Yes. Yeah. And things of that nature. Um, and, And to that point. Um, in once again, trying to understand why things went in this direction. Um, 
you know, and from one of Ethan's pieces on the Trevor Bauer situation. And it is when people try to explain all this stuff and explain this dynamic that we've been discussing, a lot of people grab for what I think is a lazy explanation of they're just doing it for clicks. And that thesis is that these that ESPN, that these legacy sports media organizations uh, thought that it would be more prosperous, it would be a better financial decision for them to embrace these progressive causes, that they'd get more viewership and more clicks out of championing a Colin Kaepernick or putting a, a Jamel Hill on the air until she got, you know, her temperature ran a little too hot and they, they fired her. But I got to be honest, embrace this cultural shift that the sports media has taken. I don't think it's serving them. And I think the proof, like financially, and the proof is in the pudding with the success of Outkick and Barstool so much. So like what, what in, in, as Ethan poses that, you know, I think a lot, he says that a lot of people, he says that a lot of people are mistaking fi- financial incentives that are really social incentives. That what's what what's driving this shift culturally at ESPN and you know the uh, kind of release of ethical boundaries and the the reason that an ESPN will be so dishonest and so unethical in reporting the Trevor Bauer story is because the people who work at ESPN uh, essentially want certain cultural cachet. Is that they think in doing right by Trevor Bauer and reporting this story accurately, they're going to be looked down upon. That they have now supported the bad guy you know because trevor bauer he wasn't just accused of sexual misconduct he was also before that known as a bit of an abrasive guy a donald trump supporter and that you know that's put him that the, that the people who work at sport uh, at espn from the reporters to the editors to god knows who has to get up and go to work each day around all these other people like they don't want to be seen as a canary in the coal mine who's going to go and defend the reputation of a trevor bauer even if that's what the facts are support and that these cultural incentives are far outweigh financial incentives because they'd probably be doing better if they reported the story honestly yeah could you imagine if espn just decided to wisen up and they had like the multitude of amazing talent that they have and the the money that they have and the resources and they just decided you know what we're just going to tell it like it is from now on and like if if you like it great and if you don't great i don't think we need to imagine yeah, we don't need to I imagine mean, it because that was ESPN until it, about 2014. No, I know, just to make that turnaround, it would just sure. be it, it seems like a no brainer, especially when you real when you see the financial hardships that they're going through. It just, it just seems like, OK, you guys, you guys know you just won't admit it. And even if you were to admit it, would you do anything about it? Probably not. Yeah. Yeah, and well, it's what you see with CNN, right? Like, because once again, it's about the the internal culture. CNN was realizing, okay, wait, now that Donald Trump's not around, we're circling the drain. We've lost all credibility. Uh, a lot of sophisticated, serious people no longer take us seriously, and it's because we operated as this kind of dishonest, ta- you know, the very tabloid driven with this tabloid merchant Jeff Sucker uh, steering the ship for a decade. So we're going to bring in the guy named Chris Licht, uh, who's you know wants to bring us back to our more traditional principles of objective news not as much editorializing, not as much opinion. And internally, like he was so rejected internally, he was fired after a year. Yeah, and he made right. a couple missteps on his own, but you're seeing it. And this this is something, you know, in parallel, the news media and the sports media are doing the same thing where they're spitting in their audience's face. They're not providing as a high quality a product. They've, you know, they, they no longer operate as ethically. And all these answers are staring them right in the face and they can't take corrective action. They can't do anything about it because the people who work at their organization now ascribe to this modern, you know, progressive ethos that will speak up that will make it impossible for them to clean up their, to clean up their act. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think they're, they've gone too far, too far down this rabbit hole to, to come back out is going to be a process, but I I don't, I don't see it happening. I just, in fact, see it probably getting much worse um, because I think we're just probably what, like halfway into as bad as it's going to get. 
uh, I don't know, you see, you see a lot of things taking their time and the groundwork being laid. And, you know, when you think something has gotten horrible, then you find out a couple years later, like, oh my God, who knew it could get any worse? So, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I always, uh, my pessimism has served me well over the years, particularly in predicting a lot of things that had seeds planted in that phase that I mentioned where I started noticing this stuff, 2014, 15, we're going to keep on taking an aggressive turn. Um, I'm hoping, hoping that some of the backlash here and that, you know, while they won't admit it, while ESPN won't take corrective action, and clean up their act, that, you know, the people there, it's, it's kind of an unspoken understanding that, wait a second, we can't push this any further because, you know, we're, we're already suffering financially and reputationally from it. Um, but, you know, uh, over at OutKick, I mean, I'm interested, what what is the what is the view? What is the mandate? Because, I mean, it does seem, you know, maybe tell me if I'm, I'm interpreting it incorrectly, that Clay did not necessarily mean to be a, a political figure or want to be running an organization that was the fusion of sports culture and politics but uh you know it kind of ended up how it's uh, that ended up how it's happening and now that you know that this outlet is looked to for you know common sense objective assessments of political issues that outkick's going to embrace that and seems to be embracing it to great success yeah well i think that he approached it initially as just this is a you know, we are going to approach things from a common sense standpoint, um, which a lot of it is. Um, but I think there are a lot of topics right now that the mainstream sports media won't touch because they are considered to be more political, politically dri- driven. Um, and those are still uh, in the wheelhouse of OutKick, obviously, because being owned by Fox, uh, we do embrace those conservative outlooks in the in the stories that do take the more conservative twists. Uh, so that so that's kind of where that fell in, into play. Uh, there's a lot of media out there that is willing to get into politics, but only when it when it embraces the left's point of view, whereas OutKick is willing to also cover and embrace the stories when it takes on the right's point of view. So I think that that's how it got a little bit more politicized. And I think just, you know, Clay gaining as much traction as he did um, and getting sucked into so many different things, talking to so many different people, I think that he himself um, got into more of that conservative political mindset where he started realizing that there was such a gap in the coverage of these types of stories that, you know, why not? And then when Fox obviously offered to be a huge partner and ally, uh, from there on, it seemed like a no brainer. Yeah, it made all the sense in the world. Yeah. Um, and so with all this, you know, where where do you I imagine that you're you're pretty high on, you know, on the continued fragmentation of the sports media landscape uh, and that the the legacy organizations, I mean, there have been, as I said, a couple successful upstarts. But I, I mean, the, the writing's on the wall. I can't imagine that ESPN is going to be or, or these other legacy uh, outlets are going to be able to turn this around. I mean, you're just going to keep on seeing, you know, the outlet, uh, the outkicks in the bar stools. Yeah. And just independent, success. independent uh, people like like Ethan, you know, people are just going to start stepping out and being like, I'm going to do my own thing because we are in a day and age where you don't need to be aligned yep. with an organization to anymore the, to speak yeah, to the to customer. Speak, exactly. To, 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 to say what you want to say, to approach things from your authentic point of view, uh, from whatever, whatever political, you know, uh, side you're on, it doesn't matter. Like you have the platform now. There's the rumbles, there's the YouTubes, there's the, all the, the X, the, the Instagrams. It's, I mean, no, no one consumes media the same way as they used to. Uh, everyone is, is turning just to, scrolling and they're like oh this is interesting oh i i discover people all the time that i didn't even know existed and then next thing you know i'm i'm huge fans of them and i'm i'm checking every day to see what they're posting 
No doubt. Yeah, ESPN's like someone who was being chased by by people with you know uh, uh, torches and pitchforks and decided to douse themselves with gasoline. Gasoline. They handled it as poorly as they could. Um, but the Trevor Bauer situation just a perfect encapsulation of the downfall of the legacy sports media, their dishonesty, and the strange cultural turn that they have taken. And thankfully for you know some of the alternative independent voices, whether it be Ethan Strauss, Outkick, Barstool, um, who you know I don't it. it even pains me to believe that these are politically oriented outlets. They just seem to be trying to serve your average traditional sports fan and give a common sense perspective. But you're getting the honest story from them a lot more than you're getting the honest story from the legacy media. Um, so with that in mind, you know, Charlie, thank you so much for everything that you do and your work here. And that would be great if you could tell everybody where to find you. Yeah, so you can obviously find me. We've gotten a couple shout outs on Outkick. Uh, I host a morning show Monday through Friday called Outkick the Morning. Uh, it starts streaming at 8 a.m., but of course, you can go catch up later in the day whenever you have time. I know a lot of your listeners are probably on the West Coast, so I don't expect all of you to get up at 5 a.m. to watch me. Uh, if you want to, I won't have any issue with it. Um, but yeah, there I'm, I talk about everything. I'm doing sports. I'm doing news. I'm doing politics. I'm doing pop culture. Actually, today, my show consisted of a, a long-form interview with Kelly Stafford, the wife of Matthew Stafford, who was just phenomenal. Um, and we got into some things that I think most people would be too afraid to ask her. You know, I, I was, I was interested in, you know, how it works with the wags, you know, the wives and girlfriends, of the wags. uh, you know, she obviously comes from a very sincere place. She met Matt before he was a big time star, but there's a lot of these gold digging, uh, you know, what's out there who don't come from the same point of view. So I, I got her take on that as well as a lot of other things. So, um, she was awesome, but yeah, just what, what interests me, uh, you're going to find on the show. So it's, it's. It's running the gamut. It's a lot of fun. So that's where you can find me then on social media at Charlie on TV, C-H-A-R-L-Y. Uh, no shortage of topics to digest these days. And, you know, to everybody out there on the West Coast, yeah, you might not wake up that early for Charlie every day. But when she finally has me on, I'm going to make sure you guys get up at 5 a.m. And it's going dawn. to happen. No doubt. We'll have the rooster crow. Um, <laughs> everybody, thank you once again. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. Well, thank you once again, everybody. This is The Prevailing Narrative. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.